Maybe some of you are like, yeah, finally, you know, <laughs> finally got time space to myself. Uh, anybody have just a fantastic week? Like you just go, man, that was a fantastic. Like there's, a, it was a fantastic week. Chris, yeah, yeah, Grace, what made it fantastic, Grace? Um, work was pretty good. I, you know, got a little football game on Fridays. We're a normal community, Ironman, go Ironman. Yeah. Um, we, we graduated my house. Yeah, yeah. Chris, what made your week just fantastic? Multiple what meetings? Yay. <laughs> Sounds like fun, right? Like, yeah, who's, who's in for meetings? I know somebody who likes meetings. I work with somebody who likes meetings a lot. Um, um, any of you guys in a fantasy football league? Yeah. yeah. Did anybody draft Josh Allen? <laughs> any Bills players? You guys draft any Bills players? Zero. Zero. You know how many Chiefs players I drafted, Kyle? Who said? Anybody draft Bills players? Anybody? Did I hear a Stephon Diggs and Isaiah McKenzie? Did I hear that? Yeah. James Cook, you get a sleeper. It's going to be good. Great. Hey, listen, here's the thing. Anybody care about football? Yeah. <laughs> Sports, am I right? Yeah. Hey, the thing is, is that the Bills are predicted to be good this year. Yeah. Can you believe it? Yeah. Well, that's, a, that's a coin toss, guys. That's a coin flip right there. You can. That's a coin flip. Yeah, what else we got? Uh-huh. Oh, good night. Yeah, but I kind of like it. I kind of like it. I'm like down for this. Like the bills are finally good. We've been at the bottom of the barrel for for way too long, right? The bills have just been. Look at that, man. That's just you can't. I mean, does he keep doing that? He just keeps going over people, right? Yeah. What else we got? Any more? Is that it? I haven't been looking. Go bills. All right. But we've been like we've just been on the bottom, right? Just the bills have just been the bottom of the barrel. But I'll tell you something though. Huh. Feels good to be on top. Chris, you know what it's like to be on top, right? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, Kyle, you know what it's like to be on top. So I get it, right? But my team is actually like the favorite to win the Super Bowl. They're like, they are predicted like, I mean, no, just, what's hard is that does the person who's the Vegas odds to win the Super Bowl, do they go on to win the Super Bowl? Usually not, but they're, but it feels good to be a winner. That's all, right? It feels good to be like, I'm on a winning team. But you know what doesn't feel good? Probably to be a Patriots fan. Uh, it does not feel good to be a Patriots fan right now. See, because my people are just better than your people right now, Chris. I mean, it's, uh, it's the God honest truth, right? Um, listen, for almost a year, as well, for almost a year, uh, between Kyle and I, you know, all I've heard is this. Um, Kyle say, I bet you I could do that in 13 seconds. Right? 13 seconds is all I need today. Kyle, what can you do in 13 seconds? What can you do in 13 seconds? Yeah, you can beat the Bills. The only reason why that would like truly bother me is if it was coming from a real Chiefs fan. So, but we tend... <laughs> it's helpful when you got the mic, right? Uh, right? We tend to struggle with people who are different colors than us, right? I can be in the same room with Kyle and Chris. It feels good now to be in the same room with Chris. <laughs> Kyle, we may sit on different sides of, of the room, but people, we tend to struggle with people who are different than us. Don't we? Um, they don't live like us. People don't live like us. People who don't make the same decisions we do. People who don't look like us. Don't make the same choices as we do. So who's, who's your team? Like, you have a team? Who's your team? Like, when you... At the end of the day, like when you're thinking about all your relationships, there's a team you keep. Who's, who's your team? Who are your people? Like who are the people you tend to just associate with? Who are the people that you consider like, these are the ones that I'm going to relate to? These are the people I'm gonna have a relationship with. Are there, are there any people that you think, you know, maybe you've passed them by recently. Maybe it's in a class, maybe it's, you know, you just pass in the halls, in the, in the dorm, by your apartment. You're like, they just don't seem, they seem unworthy for relationship. I'm just not going to relate to them. Are there people in your life that you avoid because they make poor decisions? You see their poor decisions, you see how it's being lived out. You know, the people who don't, they just don't dress the same as you. They don't, they don't look the same as you. What about people who don't vote the same way as you do? Are they worthy of relationship? What do you feel on the inside about those people? My, my guess is that if you're like me, you've spent time up here. Or you, you're kind of spent time on the top looking down on a lot of other people, a lot of other teams. They just, they're just not up here with you. You know, it's like, for me, it's like, go educated people. Go people who can use big words. Go people who think like me, like, woo yeah, man, I'm for people who are hard workers. Doesn't this sometimes just describe us? Um, it's just too much work to change, or it just takes too much time to kind of step down. We, we don't want to go out of our way to, you know, associate with that frat boy or that sorority girl. Uh, 
We don't want to associate with those you know, religious do-gooders. We don't want to befriend the neighbor who goes and just, just parties, you know, really hard. They just lose their mind on Thursday nights. We don't want to associate with them because they're getting hammered drunk. I'm too good for that. They don't deserve my help. They don't deserve my friendship. Just let them just stay where they're at. What do we do with people who we don't think deserve anything? See, the Old Testament book of Jonah is just this fascinating narrative. It's a fascinating narrative that teaches us so much about who God is. It teaches us a lot about who we are. Because we get this picture of the heart of God in, in Jonah. And the picture is an invitation in Jonah for us to reframe our lives and our relationships. Because when the, when the world is clamoring and climbing for the top, so what Jonah does is it teaches us to do. So they're scrambling to the top. It's an opportunity for us to live differently. You, you see, to, to understand, Jonah helps us frame in and understand that uh, actually we have it backwards. That we actually have it backwards. That down here is actually where it's at. Jonah has a lot to tell us about the heart of man, the heart of God and the festival of his mercy. Jonah's this short little book, four chapters, has a lot to say about the heart of man, the heart of God, and the festival of his mercy. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just come before you, God, we submit to you, Lord, would you and your word, would it minister to, to us in a way that changes us, that reframes our lives, God, would you speak um, just a word of encouragement in, into us, Lord. You are, you, are, you are pleased with us. For those who are in Christ, who are so pleased with us, Lord, help us to, to get this and to make movements in our life that reflect your mercy and your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, a lot of people might, um, I don't know my audience super well. Like, I've got kids, many of you, your, your age, but did you guys do VeggieTales? Some of you do VeggieTales. Oh, yeah. Some of you are like, I don't know what this guy's talking about, VeggieTales. So some of you may like know Jonah from VeggieTales. Like that's that's how you learn Jonah. And uh, and so the thing about Jonah is that he gets what? He gets like swallowed up by a big fish or a whale. But the story of Jonah is just way more than that. Just way more than that. So what is the book of Jonah about? Jonah is the story of, I'm going to tell it to you real quick. Jonah is the story of this Israelite. He's an Israelite prophet who's called by God to go share the glory of Yahweh, the good news about who God is to a pagan people in Assyria, in the city of Nineveh. Okay, so this is, um, but when Jonah hears the good news about like, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh, what he does is he just flees. You can kind of see the, can you guys see that? We should have a pointer, right? So, so God comes and says, go to Nineveh, over there. And what Jonah does is he gets in a boat, and he, he, he wants to go to Tarshish, which is the south of Spain there. He starts heading that way. So he promptly just disobeys God's call. He hops on a boat. Listen, not with God-fearing Jews, but with pagan Gentiles. Jonah climbs down into the bowels of this boat, and he just promptly falls asleep. 
But God comes after Jonah, and he causes this sea to just rage. And these godless people that Jonah is in the boat with, um, these Gentiles, they're trying to save themselves, and they start throwing, like, things overboard to lighten the, the boat. They're, they're trying to sacrifice their own, their own load, while Jonah just does nothing. I mean, he's just sound asleep. So finally, you know, these pagans, they're praying to their, their gods, and they're like, what about that other dude? And they go and they shake Jonah awake, and they're like, kind of like, you know, do something. Like, what can you offer? What can you do? And so he says, hey, listen, Yahweh, the God I worship, he is in charge of the sea. And so these men understood then that he was fleeing. Like, the reason why they're experiencing this tumultuous sea um, is because he's fleeing this God. And so Jonah says, all right, listen, just throw me overboard. You've been throwing all this valuable stuff overboard. Throw me overboard. And they do, and the, and the sea quiets down. And in a twist of mercy, these godless sailors who Jonah is with, they, they are, they, they're shown now to have repented. Like they, they come into the very heart of God and they begin to worship the very God that Jonah is fleeing. And Jonah, of course, is you know, swallowed up by whale. And um, until he relents, and he reluctantly agrees to go to Nineveh. And, and so he gets spit out, he's on land, and he walks over to Nineveh. He finally gets there, and, and um, he shows up in the city, and he's completely disgusted. He does not like what he sees. He's clearly not motivated for any love by these people because he, he gives what is probably the shortest description of, I, I don't even know what to call it, uh, a message of God, like good news, the, the hope hope of Yahweh. It, it seems like his message is none of the above. He doesn't offer, in, this, in his message to the Ninevites, he offers nothing practical. Um, he, he doesn't say, well, this is how you can come to know this God. He offers nothing um, to talk about repentance, forgiveness, nothing, not, nothing about God's mercy. He simply shows up and he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the message. That's it. That's what he does. We don't know if more is said, but what we do have is this is what was in, the author wants us to know. This is what was intended for us to know is that this is all, this is what was communicated. And guess what, guys, a miracle of miracles that's all the king needed. That's all the king needed to repent. And so he issues this decree in chapter 3. He says, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor uh, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that it is, is in his hands. Listen, you have to know this. Assyria was an exceedingly violent nation. They were not a just society. It was an extremely violent and oppressive culture. So when the king says to no longer do violence, turn away from evil and violence, it's a huge thing. And in many other places in scripture, especially in uh, the, the prophets and the minor prophets of stories, he, he says, and who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. 
And so God's message of mercy is received by these seemingly barbaric people. And Jonah is thrilled, right? Heartily. He's actually furious. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. The Hebrew word for displeased here, reah, it can mean misery or ruin or harm. God's mercy coming to these people caused Jonah excessive suffering. And he, what he told them. He just, he told God, he knew that he was the kind of God to do such a thing. So God, I knew you were the kind of God who would show mercy to those people. That's why he fled, and that's why he's angry. You see, Jonah thinks that he gets to determine who God has mercy on. So it's, so it's almost at the end of this very small four-chapter book that God pursues him again and asks him, is it right, Jonah, for you to be angry? And he says, yes, I am angry enough to die. So he would rather die than live in this seemingly irreconcilable problem. How do you personally reconcile God's justice with God's mercy? Because these people deserve justice, he, he thought. They deserve justice. Why show them mercy? It's not fair. And he's angry. And then I encourage you to read these, these four chapters. It's a very small book because the book ends in the, like, the most peculiar way. Jonah leaves Nineveh. He leaves the city, but he doesn't return home. It's almost as if he's waiting for these Ninevites to return to their pagan ways. So he's just right outside, just east of the city. It's almost like he's waiting for them to fail. And he's sitting there. He's waiting for the moment where he could just say, See, God, I told you so. <laughs> I told you you were wrong. You should not have had mercy on them. And so he sits and he waits in the heart of this, this desert, just east of the city. And, and God sees Jonah. And, and God comes to him and shows him mercy in the heat of the day. He causes a plant to grow up and give him shade. But then the plant dies. And Jonah becomes all the more angry. And the book concludes with God saying that he has the right to care for 120,000 people who don't know him. And that's it. That's it. That's the story of Jonah. That's how it ends. And this is Jonah's theological problem. Jonah genuinely loves God, and those people deserve God's wrath. Jonah wants justice. This is not a time he thinks for mercy. And so the essential question that Jonah is wrestling with is this. How can a just God show mercy to such an undeserving people? How is this okay? How is it just? Well, you see, I think that Jonah's struggle is our struggle too. The human heart is often shaped just like Jonah. Because what do we tend to do? We tend to differentiate, detest, and then detach. We tend to differentiate, Detest and then detach. Well, what about differentiating? See, Jonah is a story about race and nationalism. Not only is it a story about mercy and grace, it's a story about race and nationalism. Jonah is a part of this great nation called Israel. He's an Israelite. Essentially, he thinks he belongs to a better society and nation than these pagan Assyrians. 
See, the Syrians are heathens. They're wicked. They're ungodly foreigners. They don't look like him. They don't act like him. There's nothing that makes them deserving of any type of kindness or mercy. See, Jonah is a part of a better human people. Does this sound familiar? I tell you, I differentiate all the time. The, the last decade, I've been able and begun to see more and more of the biases that I have. Now that we differentiate, we've been to test. He's going to get, basically Jonah says, I'm going to get as far away as possible from these heathens. We're moving in the op opposite direction. Why? Because he doesn't believe that they should be pursued by God. He doesn't want them to have God's mercy. He's not moved in his heart to love and compassion. He, he isn't moved to pour himself out, but to protect his pride. But someone, someone might say that it's, it, it's not like in his disgust, right? In, as he detests them, you know, he's running away. So it's not like Jonah is actively going and gathering an army and going to destroy the Ninevites. No, he, he's not. But you have to realize that indifference towards another is a form of intense anger. Saying, I don't care, is actually a really intense emotion. Have you ever, have you avoided anybody this past week because it would have cost you to care? differentiates, he detests, and then lastly, he detaches. He completely just tries to unhook himself from the mission that God gave him. He climbs aboard this ship, heading in the opposite direction than Nineveh. He's, he's out of here. He's gone. He's moving on. These people don't deserve anything, so he just jets. And this, this is bizarre when you see it, so I want to point it out. With who? You heard me say, but with whom does he get a ride out of town? Pagans. Godless people. In his mind, Gentile pieces of crap who are not worth God's mercy. And what does he do? Talk about detaching. He goes down into the boat and he just falls asleep. Meanwhile, the storm is raging. And Jonah, is he there helping to unload cargo? No. It's completely detached. Meanwhile, the heathens are praying to their gods in Jonah. Is Jonah praying to Yahweh? No. So they wake him up to get him involved. Do you see what's going on here? The godless sailors in the boat are depicted as clearly more noble than the God-fearing Jonah. And Jonah doesn't get it because he's just stuck. He's stuck in his ways. You see, Jonah's a story about the human heart because it's a story about the heart of God. See, Jonah's a story about our human heart because, because it's a story about God's heart. Because you see, the heart of God is to relent and restore and ultimately redeem. And this is what we've been looking at the past couple of weeks. Jonah declares God's character You've been with us the, the you know past couple weeks. He declares God's character right in the middle of, of the end of the book in, in chapter four. He says, 
For I knew, he's angry at God, he says, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. This is the same this is the same language and words that God came to Moses and declared himself to Moses and to the Israelites. If you walk out of here with anything this morning, please know that the heart of God is to show mercy, especially to those who we think are undeserving. See, God is motivated by love to show mercy to the Ninevites, and he's motivated to show love and mercy to you. In his mercy, he relents from punishment. Just like he did not bring disaster onto the Assyrians, he desires to show that same level of grace and mercy to each one of us. And so remember that the, the story of mercy is, it's not that just that God doesn't give us what we deserve. Mercy is not that God doesn't give us what we deserve, but rather mercy is granting and giving us a blessing instead. God's mercy is not just the withholding of something, it is the giving of blessing. This is what God aims to do. The story of Jonah is paradigmatic of what God desires to show me and you. He rises up each morning to offer you his blessing. He wants to restore your heart, and he wants it to be just like his. And so God relents, and he restores, and he redeems, he delivers us from living a life like you. And what does that look like? What does it look like to be delivered from living Jonah's life? Well, I think redemption looks like this. It's joining the party that God is throwing in your heart. See, in the New Testament, when we join in the festival of God's mercy, the New Testament, Jesus says it's kind of like a wedding. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a wedding. And listen, in the New Testament, weddings, you have to realize you have to go back, right? Weddings today are like a couple of hours you get chicken or vegetarian, right? And then the party ends and then you, you go home. This is not like the wedding. Weddings lasted like a week. Like people traveled from all over. It is a feast. Like Jesus may turn water into wine and brought out the best wine, you know, at the end of the celebration because it is just a massive, massive party. It's a feast. In fact, the story of Jonah parallels the story of the prodigal son. When we think of Jonah as really some also the path that's paradigmatic of the path that Israel takes. See, in the story of the prodigal son, the younger son ran from his father. Basically, he said, you're dead to me. Give me my inheritance. And he goes off and he spends it in wild living. He runs from his father, so did Jonah. But when the younger son returns, Jonah flips. Now he becomes the older son in the story. The older brother is just, he is just pissed. Because the younger son returns and, 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 and the father is just putting a ring on his finger and a coat. He's killing the fattened calf, and they're, they're having a party for him. And the older son is just mad. Jonah is ticked at God. I knew you would have mercy on them. And at the end of the story, Jonah is left melting in the sun while God says, listen, listen again, I want you to hear it. God says, why shouldn't I have mercy on 120,000 people who have no moral compass? My paraphrase. Why shouldn't I have mercy on the people who have no moral compass? 
And so at the end of the story, Jonah refused to be delighted in, in who God is, in, in his mercy. He refused to go back into the city and join the feasting and the celebration of the, in the joy of repentance. And so, t- so too, Jesus tells us that the older brother would not join the party of the younger brother, whom the father was waiting day and night, day and night to return. He would not taste the slice of rich meat or drink the finest wine and celebrate the father's mercy, who he believed should have rebuked the son and returned him back to eat with the pigs rather than embrace him. So you see, redemption in our life happens. This is, this is what happens. Redemption in our life, it happens when we join the festival of God's mercy. Redemption happens when we come to the party just ready to celebrate with all kinds of people who are celebrating a merciful king. Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? To love God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. Who who is my neighbor? Easy. Easy. Is anybody who's made in the image of God. Every single person who is created in God's image is my neighbor, is worthy of my love and, and affection. See, but the, the hardest part you and I struggle with is, is to not look at people based on what they deserve, but look at our neighbor as an image bearer of God. Do you, do you know how hard that is to do? Do you know how hard it is to not judge someone's character and choices, but just instead look at them in the eyes and just see that they are God's creation? It's really hard to do. Why? Because maybe we think that the reason they don't deserve, the reason why they don't have what they have, or the reason why they're in the situation they're in is because they deserve it. They've never They've made bad choices. Maybe they're in this poor place, socially, educationally, and they don't even care. I mean, look at they, know where they're at, they don't even care. They're suffering now, their kids are suffering. They think they're entitled to some of my hard-earned labor. They're entitled to associating with my friendships. Those people are just going to use me. Why should they get mercy? Why should I be the one to tell them about who God is, a God full of steadfast love and mercy? The commentators, they point out, um, they frequently point out this, is that Jonah and the pagan sailors, they're all in the same boat. The pagan sailors came to Jonah and said, why aren't you helping? Why are you just sitting there? And what some of us fail to realize is that we're in the same boat. Jonah forgot this important fact that we are all in the, we're all in the same boat. He forgot it when you and I. Because remember, Jonah fled the festival of God's mercy. He didn't want to attend. And some of us, we, we do, we hang out east of the city. We hang out in our little circles and, you know, God is holding out an invitation to join him in the celebration when the cool girl receives mercy, 
when that quiet person receives mercy, when the racist receives mercy, when the drunk receives mercy, when the rich receive mercy. Join in the celebration. So what does it look like practically? What does it look like to, to join in that celebration for you and I to do that? Well, first, I, I think it means this. Understand God's solution to justice. Understand it. So the, the story of the prodigal son, the father in the story of the prodigal son, he told, he told the older brother who refused to come in and join the festival of the father's mercy. He told him, he said, he said, listen, man, all that I have is yours. What he's saying is that I haven't held anything back. But like there's Jonah's not missing out on anything by being east of this east of the city. Like he's not missing out on, on it. Every, like everything is available to him. It's as almost as if there's an accusation there that God is stingy. Like it's almost like God, the, the father in that depiction is almost answering an accusation that, that the older son isn't saying, is that, you think I'm stingy? The son's saying, God, you're cheap. You're, you're, you've been cheap to me. Until we look at what justice cost him. See, because the way that God levels the debt that we owe, the payment for our rebellion against him, it's all in the cross. Because you see, the cross is the deepest solution to unfairness. Jesus is the substitute for our death. He lived the life that I should have lived, and that's credited to me as righteousness when I trust him. So too, his resurrection, my resurrection, will be in him because he was resurrected. It will be ours, and nothing will keep us from life with God. This is not a stingy God. So the good news of Jesus is his invitation to come and join in the festival of mercy. This is the most important party invitation you will ever receive. And so joining the celebration is to say, I, I need I need forgiveness. I, I need to be clean. Jesus, you're the only one who can do that. Make me clean. But here's the rub. Here's the challenge. He's inviting us to stay at the party because more and more people are coming in and there's more and more to celebrate. There are things in the gospel that necessitate that we, we do them. There are things that God calls us to do that are just inextricably linked. They are just linked together. You cannot separate life with Jesus from, from the heart of God. Because the command, greatest commandments are love God, Jesus said, but the second is love your neighbor. Showing Christ-like mercy is coming down from your perch and joining in the celebration, what does that look like? I have one thing I want to share with you. One thing. What does it look like? What could it look like? Show economic mercy. There's a reason why you might hear us say again and again, and I hope experience, not just what we say, but experience here, is that we value a Christ-centered worldview in areas of race, justice, and the marginalized. It's Jonah's mission, and it's ours. We're all in the same boat. And again and again, you just hear that God's heart beats for the alien and the fatherless and the widow. 
He wants us to pay special attention to, to these groups. Why? Because when we do, when we pay special attention, we participate in the celebration of who God is. We join the party. And so showing economic mercy to people made in the image of God, listen, it is not a replacement for the good news of the gospel that someone needs to turn and trust Jesus, but nobody can escape what Jesus is calling us to do. We can't escape what he's calling us to do. This has been a life lesson for me. I think 15 years ago, I would have just simply looked at someone's situation and thought they got themselves there. The reason they're poor or suffering or in trouble with the law, it amounts to their poor decisions. They are reaping what they sow. That's biblical. I'm just watching the law of reaping play out. The last decade or so, I've made, I've really made an about face. I'm realizing that God is inviting me into this incredible festival of his mercy by showing mercy to those who seemingly don't deserve it. I'm trying to remember that we're all in the same boat. Man, the events in the U.S., the pre previous administration, of the previous administration, those events, right, they gave me ample opportunity to think about this and communicate this. And about three years ago, uh, I began a dialogue with a friend because I used the word meritocracy. I just said, I don't, don't believe in meritocracy anymore. They said, well, they agree that, that there is no spiritual meritocracy, but there's nothing on Christ-like to have marketplace meritocracy. And, and I just said, why do you make a distinction? Kind of the idea is that meritocracy is that when I work hard, then I'll be rewarded. When I, when I do these things, then, you know, it, it will show forth in my effort that I'll, I'll start climbing the ladder. We were talking about financially. I said, the reason why, I just don't think God separates it. And so without getting into the weeds, I want to share with you my perspective here. Maybe you guys are ahead of me here. Maybe you're listening to this and you're like, I figured that out for a long time. I was eight. I was like, I'm a slow learner. Maybe you can teach me. Maybe there's things you guys are going to teach me. I can learn from you. But in, in case you're maybe behind me or you haven't thought through this, then I, I want to give you my reasoning with this conversation with my friend. Because my friend was adamant that they're that the reason that they got to where they were is because they worked hard in life. Now, I didn't doubt that there was hard work. I didn't doubt that at all, but I did doubt the premise. I just communicated, I don't know why the boss would give you a raise. What if the boss is biased? I don't know whether you, who, who determines how you got to where you, somebody determined that. It may not have been because of your merit. It may have been because you had somebody who just gave you a, a raise. They rejected that this is even a possibility for them. And, and then, and then I, I said, you know, sometimes when you open your mouth and you're like, I just want to draw that back in. Right? Then I just said, hey, listen, I just am not a fan of capitalism. 
because it's not an unbiased system. Now listen, I don't have a different proposal for the world to adopt. I think capitalism is, has done really well in all the world's financial systems, okay? But I just, I'm just not a fan of it because I said as a Christ follower, generosity is my call. Mercy is my marching order. So that means, I went on to say that if I were a business owner, if I'm living the gospel, it means, it means that if I am in business, and I love the gospel. I'm not going to just pay the fair wage. I'm not going to tell the government to tell me what is the lowest amount that I can pay so that I get more. I don't want to just pay a living wage. I want to pay an extravagant wage. Why? Because grace and mercy always go beyond what the world does. That didn't sit too well. They continued to argue that they got to where they were because they did it. They came from poverty, they pulled themselves out. The reason others are still in poverty is because they didn't work hard enough. It's really simple. Don't I get it? Listen, it's not that they're not generous people. They're extremely generous people. They are. But we tried to discuss things like we entered into a discussion about the generational wealth gap between white and non-white Americans and they didn't see that the heart of God is to pull us from our perch and direct us to do something about it. Why? Because we're all in the same boat. So what does it mean for you? What does it mean for you to join in the festival of God's mercy? I don't know exactly. I don't know. What things you're thinking about maybe is God's been speaking to you? What things in your heart and your life and your thinking need to change so that you can more join in his celebration? I don't know how you should respond. But Jesus does. He wants to change your heart. So during the worship time, you're just asking. Maybe you have a, like a strong opinion about how many F-bombs can be tolerated in one sentence and these people down the hall exceed it and so you're not going to talk to them. Maybe it's time to just go meet them, friend them. Maybe that, you know, let's go Brandon sticker on that person is your kryptonite. They're made in the image of God. God is pursuing them to show mercy. Would you? We're all in the same boat. And listen, I want you to hear this. No gesture, even the smallest gesture, even if it's lingering with doubt and bias in your life, even if it's, if it's less, if it's made with just, just a little bit of faith, no gesture, listen, God is pleased with growth. Period. No effort to take a small step in this area will go unrewarded, however small it feels. It will not go unrewarded. So I don't know what it means for you. I guess that I would ask is for you to pray about it. Tell God that you're ready to follow him to your Nineveh. Ask him to do whatever Whatever pleases him. Listen, God's heart is for the nation. 
His heart is for the alien and the fatherless and the widow. Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, hey, that's what you've done for me. You know, the early church sent Paul out to preach the gospel. This is amazing. The early church sent Paul out to preach the gospel. This is in Galatians 2.10. Paul records this. This is his own words. He says this. When they sent me out, the, the only thing, the only thing that they said for him to do, the only thing is to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do, Paul says. What do the poor need? Jesus seems to say mercy. And when the cross levels everything, we all come before God and we Jonah needed to turn from his self-righteousness. The Ninevites needed to be forgiven of their idolatry and worship of false gods. And so the cross is where we see the justice and mercy of God in true Would you guys stand with me as I pray? Father in heaven, we just tonight, today, this morning, we just want to, as best we can, join in the festival of your God's mercy in our own lives, in hope that what you are doing is coming to not just restore me and my life, but one day, my whole being and my body in the resurrection, join you to be forever with you. Forever and ever and ever and, and ever and however many efforts that there are because of the kindness of the riches of the grace that you show us in Jesus. Lord, help us to join in that festival of mercy once we sing out to you. Would you be with us in Jesus' name?